1: DeBianco.
0: Why make art? Because you must. The new connected economy demands it and will reward you for nothing else. Because you can. Art is what it is to be human. The safety zone has changed, but your comfort zone has not. Those places that felt safe, the corner office, The famous college, the secure job, aren't. You're holding back, betting on a return to normal. But in the new normal, your resistance to change is no longer helpful. Now, those of you who have been... I'm going to say that again because that wasn't (laughs) correct English. Those of you who uh, have been following my podcast... Uh, Take a guess where I took that quotation from. Yup, those of you who said from Seth Godin's book, The Icarus Deception, are spot on. I can't recommend this book enough. If you're interested in making some dramatic positive changes in your life... Hey, hello. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. If you get value from the show, please leave us a five star rating on iTunes, a brief review, and click subscribe. This will help to spread the word. Also, at the site changeyourstorypodcast.com, make sure to download your free ebook. Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Now today's guest is a fascinating young woman. She's smart, she's multi-talented, and fiercely independent. She's a woman who's determined to live her own dream, not someone else's dream. She's determined to make art because she must and because she can. She was born in Canada, she graduated from law school, Sherbrooke Law School, in 2002, and she passed her bar exams in 2003. We're going to find out some interesting things about her journey in the career of law. She also had a passion for acting, and in 2006, she started taking acting classes with Jacqueline McClintock, and, Gay, and then she who pushed her to go to New York City to continue her training. She picked herself up, found the courage, and went. And from 2010 to 2012, she studied at the famous Neighborhood Playhouse in New York City. She's appeared in off-Broadway shows and several productions with critically acclaimed directors such as Ron Stetson, Tony Award producer Adam Blanchet and Emmy-nominated actor Susan Shepard, best known for her work in Goodfellas and The Sopranos. In Canada, she played in a wonderful piece called Piazza San Domenico, written by uh, a well-established Montreal playwright, Steve Galluccio. This was at the Centaur Theatre, and she's made appearances in a television series called *192*. And also in Mohawk Girls. And she's going to be a, appearing in a very funny commercial, which is a Reese Pieces commercial. Hey, I can't wait to see that. Her name is Mara Lali, And I'm excited and honored to have her on the show today. Mara, welcome to the show.
1: <laughs> How are you? <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for having me. I really, I really appreciate it. I always begin at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Where exactly were you born, Mara? I was born in Montreal. In Montreal. Mm-hmm. And were you born to a big family?
1: Um, no. Uh, I have one older brother. Um, mom and dad, and my grandparents also lived with us, so we were always six. But it was um. Very tight with the, the cousins and aunts and uncles, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a big family. We were only four. So you come from
0: an Italian family, yes?
1: Yes, yes. Italian is my mother tongue. Where in
0: Italy are they from? Abruzzo.
1: Abruzzo. My mom's from Abruzzo and my dad's from Molise, Campo Basso. Can you
0: talk a bit about your childhood? What
1: was it like? Um, I think I was very fortunate to... To have a very loving family, um, the experience of growing up with my grandparents as a second mom and dad, really, because they lived with us, was incredible. A lot of love, a lot of um, wholesome values, but kind of we lost track of, I find, today. And it, it's great memories that I have, maybe cooking and doing things with my grandma, who recently passed away in May, so I miss her a lot.
0: Well, when you say that there were values that um, you don't feel we have anymore, can you um, think of something
1: specific? I find in general, people are lost in consumption and just material things. You're always chasing uh, the newer car, the newer cell phone, the newer this, the newer that. For us, it was really about just family. Every dinner, we would sit at the table and it wasn't just let me swallow my meal and go back to the TV. We just, we stayed there. Like meals would last forever. And especially if my cousins and uncles were and aunts were over, it would just last hours and we would just sit at the table laughing, talking. And it was just, as a kid, I was aware of it. I was always very conscious that I was fortunate to have my grandparents and to have such a loving household. I remember, um, I, I don't know, I might have been twelve or thirteen and I was crying like periodically every month um, eventually my pe- my grandparents are gonna die and I don't know how to face that so I was always conscious of time was precious and it was valuable and you had to uh, make the most of it be present really with them with all of us, with everyone so that's, I was fortunate
0: that's very beautiful glad you shared that yeah um, I agree with you. I mean, because what you're talking about is that what you had was very rich because it was all about authentic human connection.
1: It was all about love, yes.
0: Yes. Uh, Well, you know what? I have some good news for you. I quoted from (laughs) Seth Godin's book, and his entire point of view is that we are now entering what he calls, in fact, we have entered... The connection economy, that the true value that people will bring, that will um, not only enrich them as people, but enrich them financially, is their ability to make authentic, rich human connections. So you're ahead of the game. That's really wonderful. Who were your greatest
1: influences on you when you were a kid? I think it would be my mom. I think she was um, this powerful role model that I had, I just looked up to her. What kind of work did your dad do? My dad is a, trailer, uh, a tailor by a profession.
0: Uh-huh.
1: He learned how to become a tailor in Italy. Um, and then when he immigrated to Canada, he was, I think, 18. And my mom was 16 when she moved with her family. And my mom's um fashion designer by trade.
0: Wonderful. So okay. they
1: both worked together, always worked together in uh, the schmatar business as they say and they had manufacturers, they always worked in the high end of um, of fashion in Montreal back when Montreal was the fashion center of the world in the 70s and then eventually um, sadly the industry kind of collapsed so we lost the needle trade in Montreal which is really sad, there's still a few manufacturers still going on but not it's not the golden age that it used to be,
0: but didn't your family continue with uh, their uh, with their expertise and created a business? Could you tell us a little bit about that business? Yeah,
1: in 1989, um, basically what happened was is that I started um, se- um, secondary one, and I, my school had uniforms, so we went to the tryouts, and it was it was mayhem. Uh, the quality. The, the models, the patterns, um, the service that was given was was really horrible. Um, so it kind of gave my mom saw an opportunity, a, a need really in the niche where people needed quality uniforms, service, and and just basically be treated the way you should be treated, and you shouldn't have your stuff thrown in a garbage bag and, and thrown at you. So that's how they started um, Maison Uniforme Mira in 1989, and they've been They've been thriving really um, ever since they work very very hard everything is made in house um, so yeah they still still uh, it's not really fashion end because you kind of have to create uniforms so it's it's this delicate art and balance of trying to make uniforms as fashionable as possible but still keeping uh, a uniform quality because it is a uniform is, is basically, um, the way we see it, it's, it's clothing that you have to you wear for war because the kids, they, the, the clothes take a beating because they wear it Monday to Friday and it's long hours. So you need to have durability, but you also need to make the kids happy so that they want to wear these pants and not feel like they're wearing 1950 pants, for example.
0: Right. So these, these are specifically school uniforms. Uniforms, correct. That's fabulous. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's exciting because what you're saying is your mother was basically an entrepreneur.
1: Absolutely. Both my mom and dad were. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. So that's why I'm saying she was, I always looked up to her because she was an incredible woman. She uh, n- was never afraid to speak her mind. And that's one of the things that I think she instilled in me is that you can always say what you have to say. There's ways of saying it. You don't have to be rude or impolite or scream, but you should always say what's on your mind and stand up for yourself And My grandfather used to say you should always stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves.
0: Mm, boy, you really were exposed to some very strong, wonderful values. Yeah. That is fabulous. Yeah. Now, yeah. I love asking this question of everyone. As a child, did you have a little girl's dream about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Of
1: course I did. What was it? I was a ballerina. I should have been a ballerina, a prima ballerina. Um, one of the funniest stories I have is that when my uncle got married, I was a flower girl. I was maybe, I don't know, max three years old. And apparently during the whole reception, I couldn't sit still. I was just dancing on the um, the dance floor and I was just twirling away the whole night. I just. I don't know what they fed me, but I would just not knock out. <laughs> I just danced and danced and danced. And during the whole time, I was just on the dance floor. There was no negotiating. There was, I could not sit down. And all I did was twirl around on the dance floor all night. And I don't remember it, but I do remember, as a kid, loving the sensation of, of spinning, of twirling. That's why I'm, I was always very good at doing pirouettes.
0: And, and did you then, as you grew older... Did you pursue dance at all?
1: I did, I did. Um, I was classically trained in ballet. Um, I had won a scholarship at the um, London Ballet Academy when I was in Sec 1, the end of Sec 1. And it's kind of one of those regrets that I I have because I I didn't pursue it. I didn't go to the London Ballet Academy, kind of to spite my teacher, who uh, had done something very mean to me. So I didn't want to give her the honor of having a student at the, um, the prestigious London Ballet Academy. So I didn't go. Is that true? I, really? Yeah. You, 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 how old were you? I don't know. Uh, sec one. Uh, hold on a second. Ninety one. I was 12. 12. And so yeah. you,
0: did, you did it out of a strong sense of spite.
1: Yeah, I did it as you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to to have a student that's there. And I didn't understand the repercussions. I, I was too young to understand that I was shooting myself in the foot, but uh, it's, it is what it is.
0: But you know, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the world of personal development, they not only say, but I have discovered that it's true that everything happens for a reason, and, and that, I could re- not that re- have... yeah, and and that reason is there to serve you. That ultimately, yeah. there's a positive side to it, even if we don't see it right away.
1: I could not agree with you more. That is one of the founding beliefs that I have.
0: Fantastic. Now, with this kind of background, mm-hmm. how did you eventually find your way into a career in law?
1: I don't know, really. <laughs> um, I was just always really, really good at school. It's something that I understood. Like My brain just I just, I would focus in, and I never really had to study. So it was, I always had really good grades because I I just understood, especially in math and science. I just, also sports. I was just, I was an all round A student. I don't want to brag, but I was was a a very strong student. So when I went to college, I went into pure and applied. And then I switched to um, pure and applied with um, biology background because I didn't know what I wanted to be. I kind of always knew what I wanted to be. I just didn't feel like I had the right to pursue what I wanted to be. I had to, you know, follow the adult world and pick um, an adult real career, you know, like, which we all know are five. Either you're an architect, an engineer, a doctor, an accountant, or a lawyer. Like, those are, like, the real five careers that, you know, that you should pick. So once I graduated from, from college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I sent out applications to a whole bunch of universities. Um, and I basically went to law in Sherbrooke because it's the first letter of acceptance that I received and because it was in Sherbrooke. So I was like, this is going to be a fun experience of not living at home, living like I got to leave the nest egg, but, uh, yeah, but I also got accepted at university of Montreal in, uh, in engineering. So it's just a question of timing.
0: You know, what I love about what you're telling me and telling us is that um, you made a comment before you were saying you're a very good student. And then you, of course, put a qualifier on it. You said, well, I don't want to brag. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, you know what, brag, because if it's true, then own it. But the other thing that you said that's really relevant to this whole topic, it's the heart of the book that I quoted from, is that. We have been conditioned mm-hmm. not to fly too high. And so we've been conditioned to want to do what we think we have were supposed to do, what we've been told to do. Like you said, there were certain careers you were supposed to fit into. And you ended up fitting into one of them. And you're probably good at it. What kind of law did you study?
1: Uh, well, when you study law, you basically study um, all of them. Because you're in Quebec, it's uh, the civil code, it's civil law. You also touch common law because of certain aspects of the way the jurisdiction is broken down. So there are some common law that I touch, mainly like criminal law, for example. And you graduate, you do your bar. I was the old school bar where you had six exams of four hours each, whereas now it's one exam of five hours. So it was different. Um, When I passed the bar, it took eight months. Because you had um, six different blocks, and every block you had to have the practical, um, the written, the oral, and you had to also have the written where you had to write uh, procedures. And... So it was different. I, now I think it's just one exam that you have to write. What was the qu- How did I? What, what was your question? That's it. You specialize in, in what you, uh, in, when you practice. And I practiced in, uh, I, I was a defense criminal attorney. Wow. So criminal, yeah. So, That's extremely, extremely interesting. Oh my God. So, wh- how long
0: did you, when you actually uh, passed the bar, how long did you practice criminal law?
1: Um, I want to say I've, I don't know, roughly four years, something like that, not more than four. And um, at first, it was extremely fascinating because I got to see aspects of humanity that normal people don't get to see. Um, if I mean, when I say normal people, I mean people that have the good fortune of coming from a balanced family uh, where you're not necessarily exposed to crime, to abuse, to violence. I wasn't uh, growing up. So that's what I found very fascinating is that I got to see aspects of humanity that I never had the chance to see and not necessarily beautiful aspects. Sides of humanity, but it's still a side of humanity that was fascinating. Um, dealing with these different people, uh, almost, some of them were like characters. It's it, it was extremely heartbreaking, also, and I think that's one of the reasons why I couldn't do it anymore. Is that I I had a very hard time disassociating myself with my clients' problems. I felt like I had to save them. So it well, was. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah.
0: Could you tell me, uh, do you, can you tell us any story about perhaps one of the most challenging or fascinating cases that you took on? You don't have to mention any names, but...
1: Um, um, I mostly dealt with um, plantations, like uh, house plantations. So a lot of weed, stuff like that. Um, I would also touch um, junk driving. Um, there was one case which was also very fascinating, was a home invasion case. Uh, It was a huge organization and it was well thought out. It was, the guy was really a genius. Um, The way he operated, like these home invasions, he would target people who had plantations so that they couldn't call cops. So it was like, um, it was ingenious in his way of of operating.
0: When you say plantations, excuse me, you're talking about where they grow uh, marijuana.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. So I that's basically what I always played with. I never touched a murder case. I hear that those are, you can understand them. You can relate to it because it's, it's something that happens and then there's a moment of rage, which makes you behave in a way that you shouldn't and it makes you commit a crime. But there's other types of crimes that I could not do. Uh, anything that had to do with um, incest or pedophiles or anything like that, I would just refuse the cases. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Well, There's a lot of things that was always heartbreaking is basically having to call the parents to say, hey, I need a certain amount of money for a retainer or else I can't bail your son out of jail. And having to hear the mom just emotionally break down on the phone, that was hard. Or seeing kids the way, even if they were super little, they understood the dad was detained or was in jail. I remember... I think one of the things that really, I wouldn't say made me jaded, but really was like putting a nail in the coffin. I was at uh, Bordeaux, which is a prison in Montreal, and I usually as a lawyer, you, you don't have to go to the public cubicles. You can ask for your client to be put into a special room and you have direct access so that they can sign forms and stuff like that. But when I went, they were all booked and I didn't feel like waiting. So I went to, like, the public where, you know, everybody goes to visit um, a detained or a prisoner. So I'm there, and I'm talking to my client, and I could see, you know, like, it's it's like in the movies. Like, you have, like, the glass wall, and there's, like, people, like, sitting all, like, next to you. And one of them uh, was a mom, and you can kind of tell what kind of life she was living. And she had this beautiful little baby girl. She was maybe... Couldn't have been more than two, you know, like because she still had a hard time walking. She would wobble. And I'm talking to my client, and I, I kept seeing the little girl. She understood that her dad was, was in jail, and she would wait for, like, the opportune moment when the guards were busy to kind of run, sneak behind the counter, and try to open the door so that the dad can come out. And they were laughing at it because they found it was funny. And for me, it just broke my heart. It's like, you find it funny... This little girl understands that you're you're being detained, and she's trying to free you, and you're laughing. I it really it really broke my heart. Was that your client? She was not my no, it was not my client. It was the client. It was just this person, random person that was next to me. I see. Wow, that, that, that's that's yeah, that's and, and it kind of it kind of broke my heart because it's like she's innocent. What? what did she do to deserve parents who just neglect her like that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I just, you know, your mind wanders off and you start thinking, what kind of future can she have? Like, is she going to, is she, is she going to have the strength to, to come out of this? You know, like, cause she didn't start at zero like everybody else. Like she started at like minus 1000. She's got to climb herself out of this and,
0: well, it was just sad. What I what it is it's extremely sad what I'm finding more and more from the the many different people I interview and the people that I interact with is that so many people who have these horrible things happen to them actually create magnificent lives. Yeah. That I, because we have choice some of them don't some of them respond to the hurt by uh, allowing themselves to be damaged, and they continue to get worse. But there are yes. those who... But I understand how you felt.
1: So that's, that's, <laughs> that was my question, is that is she is she going to use this for good, or is she going to become part of the statistics? Mm-hmm. That's what I was, you know, left with. Is, and, I, I, and I'll never know, because I'll never see this. I don't know. This little girl is probably, I don't know, 2008... I
0: don't know. She's probably 10 now. Hmm. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, too. I just want to go back for a moment. You said that that man that you were defending that you called a genius who was doing these clever home invasions. Can you tell us a little more about like uh, what what was so anything that stands out for you about this person?
1: He was not my client. I was representing um, someone else who was involved in the scheme of, of, like, the. they had okay. this whole organization. Okay. Basically, um, the mastermind of this case, what he would do is that he would trigger people, he, he would uh, target people in his community that he knew were, were either involved in, in a criminal aspect or had a, a plantation in, there and in one of the, the dwellings that they owned so that they could not call the cops, right? And the, he knew that there was going to be money or there was going to be goods that he could steal. So that's how he—that's how this whole thing went on for like years. He would trigger. He would target. Sorry, specific people within the community where he knew that they couldn't ask for help to the cops. So and this went on and this went on. And when he, there were when that batch of people finished, he targeted a different group of people, which were people who um, owned restaurants. It, it was a Vietnamese community. And eventually, police got wind of it. And that's when they had this whole big sting operation and they, they caught. Because eventually, as the longer, because that's the problem with, with criminals, is that they get greedy. You know, you could do something and you can get away with it once or twice, but if you keep at it, you are going to get caught. And you get greedy, you get sloppy, you start thinking that you're unstoppable and, you know, you're above. And
0: and And how how old was this guy? Oh, he was old. He was in his 50s, 40s. I think he was 46,
1: 37. Yeah. I see. It was just uh, a ruthless way of of taking advantage of people.
0: I see. I see. He was uh, a genius mastermind. Did he eventually go to jail?
1: Oh, of course he did. Yeah. How old were you at the time when you were doing this work? Uh, I started, I think, uh, I think I was 28. I was 28 in in that specific file, in that case.
0: So was there one event that led you to make that decision to say, that's it, I am going to leave this profession?
1: I think, to be honest, it started, um, like, you know, when you said everything happens for a reason, and Mm -hmm. whether it's good or bad, I always had the philosophy of trying to find the good in it. So in 2003, on um, Canada Day, I was out. Actually, it was the night before. I was out with my friends, and I got basically attacked by a madman. Um, This guy just started literally beating me to a a pulp, and nobody helped me. It was pretty gruesome because he broke my nose. I lost eyesight in one of my eyes. And he gave me um, a pretty severe second degree concussion. I had to fight my way out of uh, the crowd that they were Italian and they were trying to tell me to convince me not to call the cops. So I had to fight my way and get help. And the people I I was with, I don't know, it was just, it was very weird. Um, Nobody helped me. My friends didn't help me. um, it, It was a very bizarre event experience and it led me to believe that I, I, I deserved it, but I didn't because the guy was just, he was just crazy. And I went to see Shrink and that moment, that event forced me to start doing things that I liked. It, I started taking ballet again. Um, I started taking more and more classes of ballet and I kind of knew that I couldn't make a living out of ballet because it's a physical thing. I was too old. But through, I had rediscovered the, the, the love that I had to perform, to share. It's this connection that you have with the public, with people. It's the most, I don't know, it's the most intense and purest form of communication that I understand that I need. So from taking classes, uh, a friend of mine um, suggested I take an acting class and I kind of got it. I was like, okay, this is the same thing, except... I'm using words instead of using my body to express a story. And that's how I started acting. And I started taking more and more acting classes. And at the same time as I was doing this, I was getting more and more depressed with uh, the law because I didn't like it. I The initial buzz of, oh, my God, this is so cool. And I get to go to prison. And this is just like the movies. And I get to talk to a prostitute. And I get to talk to a drug addict. And I get to... I think that's what kept me alive as long as it did in, in law is that I got to interact with people that I, would, I wouldn't. I got to experience human sides of, that people have that normally you don't see. And I, I was intoxicated by that. But eventually the pressure and the stress of the job and not being happy and not feeling fulfilled and not being really able to express what I needed to express kind of started to feel like um, I was carrying the weight of the world and I was just miserable. I started shutting down uh, emotionally, I, I, was, I was a shell. I became numb. Um, I would get lost driving from the, the courthouse back to the office. I, and I understood my body was saying, hey, you're not happy, something's got to change. And I didn't have the guts to say, you know, um, this is not what I want. This is not what I like. Because I felt like I had, like, this responsibility towards everyone. Because everybody's like, oh, my God, you're a lawyer. Like, wow, you know how many people try to be a lawyer. And it's like, yeah, but I don't like it. And I, and some people flat out told me you don't have the right to quit because it's so many people's dreams. Who are you? To say no to it and it's like well if they dream of it let them go to law school and do it this mm-hmm. is not what I want Hmm. good for you yeah uh, it kind of took me a good two years and by that point my body was really abused because I was miserable and I felt it that my body kind of gave me a, a final warning saying either you pull, pull the plug or I'm going to pull it for you
0: what, how? How did your body do that?
1: I was just starting to, I, I couldn't function. I, I couldn't be around people. I uh, had lost all sex drive and I was in a relationship. I, I would just break down crying all the time. I was depressed. I had no energy. I did not want to go out. Everything felt, brushing my hair felt like climbing Mount Everest. I was just, I was just really depressed. Because I kept, I felt like I was forced to do what I didn't want to do. Right. So then eventually I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it got so bad that my mom realized and just like, what's going on? And I was like, I'm not happy. And she's like, well, quit. And it kind of felt like if I, I needed her approval, and it, it sounds silly, but I kind of ha- needed to feel like she was okay with me not being perfect.
0: Yeah, no, so I there's, quit. N- there's nothing silly about that. That's that's a very deep human need. Yeah. So thanks, that's just thanks for being so vulnerable. You know what fascinates me though, I would love to know you said that when this horrible thing happened to you, you then yeah. began to get back in touch with things that you loved. But what yeah. was what was it that made you was there a moment when you suddenly made a choice to start focusing on things that you love after you're being beaten?
1: Um, I kind of was it was uh, having to love yourself again um, mm-hmm. kind of forced me to, to say to it wasn't my fault he was a crazy demented individual who likes to beat women, he had six priors because uh, I pressed charges and he had already six priors of where he had um assaulted women
0: so did this happened outside or was it in yeah. a, in a no in, it was in a club and and in a in a club
1: Yep. and and were you speaking to him or did he just come up to you out of nowhere he just came up to me i and that's the other thing that gets me so mad is that you should always follow your instinct your instinct is there it understands things that you can't put your finger on but it's right and I was talking to this guy. We're talking because at the time I wanted to get an MBA and he was taking classes at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia. So I'm talking to this guy and I saw this other man, uh, this young guy. It, it just it felt like a shark like behavior. I felt like he was circling me because he mm-hmm. kept going. Like I saw him pass around me twice. And it just, it's just weird. Like who does that? Like I felt like I was a prey and he was like cir- circling his prey. And then the next thing I know is that I feel that, you know, he had physically assaulted me. He had sexually assaulted me, sorry. And I still, I knew it was him, but I still had to be, you know, proper and, and polite and say, excuse me, did you just, you know, assault me and grab me? And he replied, yeah. And, and he was vulgar. I'm not going to repeat exactly what he said. But in a nutshell, it was like, yeah, and what are you going to do about it? And I told him, don't ever, you know, bleep, 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 touch me again. And that's when he just started beating me. And I saw it. I saw the punch coming because um, I'm also trained in Taekwondo. So I, I, I could read the, the behavior of the mechanics. And I all I could do was put my arms up. I couldn't kick him because I kind of had a tree uh, in, in front of me. So so when he punched me, because this guy was tall, he was like 6'2", he kind of you know sent me flying and I fell on the people behind me and they must have thought I was a drunk girl. So they are holding me by the arms. So I can't even protect my face anymore. And this guy just kept punching me. And, and none, of them, none of them tried to protect you? No. And you know what? For the longest time, I couldn't understand. But I recently saw uh, a movie, a documentary slash movie uh, called The Experiment. And it's basically uh, a scientist, a research a psychologist who um, did experiments. And basically, 30% of people, only 30% of people are going to actually do something when it in a situation where someone is uh, being harmed. Uh-huh. So oh, it, wow. it kind of, yeah, because it was only the barmaid who jumped over the counter and said, look, I wish I could help you, but I have a bar. Here's a, a rag for your blood. Like, cause I was bleeding. The guy broke my nose.
0: Oh man. How, how old was this guy?
1: Uh, I think he was more or less my age. He must have been like 25, 26. So he did go to jail. No, absolutely not. Uh, no, when I no. pressed charges, eventually three years later, it took forever to get this case to go to trial, and it didn't go to trial because the defense attorney, the, uh, sorry, the prosecutor, uh, decided. Well, he's kind of right in a way because the eyewitnesses. I it was it was eventually boiled down to my um, testimony versus theirs. Because everybody who witnessed either when they wrote the report either said I was too drunk or I didn't see or kind of made it in a way that they couldn't testify, which kind of sucks. But it is what it is. But till this day, I am. It's the thing that brought me back to me. It's the thing. It's the event that put me back on the right track. So in a way, kind of grateful it happened. I know.
0: I Listen, I hear you. This is very powerful stuff. So, wow. What, what was the actual day? How did you actually bring the law career to an end?
1: Took me forever to get the courage to go up to my boss and say, I'm giving you two weeks. And I finally did. And he's like, okay, come and see me in, in, in two weeks and we'll talk about it again. And I did. I went back two weeks later. I'm like, Tony... Cause I really love I really loved him I he was like a father figure um, I knew him as a kid because he was uh, my uncle's best friend so I do have this incredible bond with him so I went back two weeks later and I was like Tony like I, I'm really I can't do this he was like come and see me in two weeks and I did I'm like okay okay I went back the third time and I was like this is this is like the third and final time I'm like I'm quitting I was like i I'm not happy I don't like this and he's like, okay. And I was happy and scared at the same time. But that happened. And then that's when I quit the firm. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll take my clients. And I thought maybe if I had my own firm and I had my own hours and I was my own boss, it would be better. But it wasn't. Uh, I, didn't, I just didn't like it. And 2010 is really uh, when I really, really quit. um, Because when I decided and that's when I said, because I had a talk with my teacher, my acting teacher, uh, Jacqueline McClintock. And she's like, if you if you are serious, you have to pursue and you have to continue your your training. She's like, go to the neighborhood playhouse. And I was like, okay. So I called. I went. uh, Within a week, I decided I'm moving to New York. And I think that's really when I officially uh, quit law.
0: Beautiful. Now, how did friends, family, and other professionals respond to your choice to leave law and pursue acting?
1: I think my mom understood, or maybe she thought it was a phase that I was going to snap out of it eventually. Friends thought I was crazy to leave law, to go into acting. Like, what are you nuts? Especially, Mm -hmm. again, because, like, for some reason, lawyers are put on such um, a pedestal. Mm Mm-hmm. You know it's like you're gonna what you don't want to be a lawyer anymore but yeah but I didn't care really it's just something that I had to do something that I need to do it's it's like really one of the only things that really makes sense to me that that it's a different it's a it's a it's such a pure form of connection and I find more and more today we don't have it and i find that's why people go to theater that's why people watch movies to reconnect with your humanity
0: i love this this is i i think you're um you're going to inspire a lot of people with this story thank you so much now what do you feel the study and practice of law
1: contributed to your personal growth because i'm sure it did wow so much i mean just the 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 mind exercise of of breaking down of of Because as a lawyer, your job is to is is to find all the information you can. You know, like if and that's what it was, and that's what being an actor is. It's like I get a script. I am the first time I read it just to like understand the story, and then it's automatically it's like you're a surgeon and you're like dissecting line by line. This is what you know. This is for my character. This information is that character. So it's really like. getting all the information out of the text. Um, It's also the, 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 uh, having the capability of, of, of understanding the arc. Okay. You know, this chapter of this play is, it's I'm introducing this, like, this is what the public needs to understand. And, and it's, it's like the back work that the foundation of understanding what is the author trying to convey in this scene what's in you know the second scene it's it's that type of work that I find most actors don't have They're, they don't have that capability of you can't give it all on the first scene mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. you have to understand which in what scene am I breaking someone's heart in what scene am I defending my it's it's, it's that type of, of analyzing a text that I find Law gave me mm-hmm. and also the other thing that gave me is again it's getting yourself out there and, and meeting people that you would never meet and not play the stereotype of the prostitute or the... Because I also had clients that were uh, gangsters and, and pimps. And, you know, I, it's it's really analyzing behavior and what's the behavior of an addict? What's the behavior of someone who's lying? What's the... Be- you know, it's it's that really close interaction with these incredible people. I mean some were crazy some were like clinically crazy like i had schizophrenic um client who just stabbed his dad because the dad left the milk carton on on the counter and for him it was logical and it was really weird because i knew when he wasn't taking his medication because he would start talking to me in english and like this perfect english but this guy was from like la Beauce, like the heartland of like quebec french and i knew okay he's he needs to get back on his meds because he would just, it's amazing. It's amazing what the brain can do. It's amazing what the mind can do. It's amazing mm-hmm. what, what people, and it's that studying. It, it was, I, and I think that's the thing that kept me in law for so long. It was that ability to talk to people and I, was, I would just study them. I would, it, like, it was like I would put them under a microscope. This is how this person dresses, talks, expresses. This is how they gesticulate. You know, it, it, it was just so fascinating because you don't always get to meet a hitman. I, I I I don't know how many other people met a hitman,
0: or you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> it's very fascinating. Um, I love it. I love it. You, yeah, th- this it, is it so fascinating. S- this is so rich. So you have touched on this a lot in this interview, but can you address this directly? Why do
1: you want to be an actress? because it's what i'm meant to be it's because it's who i am if i don't do it i'm not me it's a part of me it's it's really it's not just an actor it's 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 to perform it's a need that i have it's i'm just made that way it's a connection with my partner on the stage or on film it's it's collaborating with directors it's creating it's it's using myself like Stanford meisner um it's the type of uh, acting that i I studied in New York said you're basically building a chair, but you're using yourself. that's what creating a character is, so you know instead of using wood to make a chair i when I create a character, I use myself and i and i you use. The imaginary circumstance of that character and, and you become and you build and when it's done right when when you hit that magical moment where you're not pushing you're not trying it's just you you just exude this character and you become this character you feel it you feel that there's something different and you feel that different connection with your partner and it's like it's one of the most beautiful human experiences that I've ever felt. It's that true connection. There's no uh, filters. There's no true vulnerability, but to create something. You know what I can associate it with? You know when uh, sometimes you get drunk with a friend? You mm-hmm. reach that magical moment where you're talking and, oh, my God, and it's that that epic conversation that you have with in the middle of like the late night, it's kind of like that magic, Mm. kind of that creation. It's that connection. It's that, it's that magic where I know you're listening to me and you're with me minute, second by second. And together we're creating this and it doesn't end there because this is going to be used to either in a film where I know someone's going to watch it and is going to be touched by it or the magic of when you're on stage you feel it right away with the audience. You feel that string that just connects you. And you, it's kind of like the audience takes my breath and we start breathing at this. You feel it. It's, it's, it's magic. It's just, it's what we're meant to be. It's, it's, it's one of the truest form of expression. It's like dancing. We all might not be great dancers, but we all can dance. And we all, in moments when you do dance, you express yourself truly, you're connected to the music to the other person, or you know it's, I think we are losing this more and more, especially with all like this technology and, and, and text messages. You, there's so much essence that is lost. That's why I like to act. That's why I, I need to act.
0: I love what you just said. Do you remember the quote that I used at the very beginning?:
1: Yes.. yes. Can
0: I read it to you again?
1: I would guess absolutely.:
0: Why make art? Because you must. The new connected economy demands it and will reward you for nothing else. because you can. Art is what it is to be human. Wow. And you just, in your own words, authentically express that. That yeah. is that is absolutely beautiful.
1: I believe that making art is not it's not just an art. I think art is being connected to someone and being vulnerable. You can be a cashier and make art in the way that you serve the person who's in front of you and, and, and serving. I think that's what art is for me. It's, it's you put yourself at service to connect, to touch someone. And you don't have to make a painting. You just have to look at the person in front of you and be there and say, okay, is it a deposit or... you you know
0: what I mean? Oh, yeah, I do. And I think Seth Godin would agree with you 100%. Yeah. That is just wonderful. Now, who are the actresses and actors you admire the most? For me, it's uh, Marilyn Brando. What about women?
1: There's Anna. Oh, why can't I remember her last name? Anna Magnani. Okay. I absolutely love her. Sophia Loren. i um, okay. big fan of her. You also have Meryl Streep. She, she is incredible
0: fabulous now mara how big is your ambition it's huge it's gigantic give us an idea does it scare you does it scare you at all
1: absolutely not i think if anything it just gives you more uh wind on beneath my wings it like it it i i can't wait to look i look forward to it you know what i mean like i can't wait for it to happen where i'm going to get that role that is and allow me to work with X, Y, Z um, director or bring me to a different part of the world. It, it, I, I look forward to it. I, I can't wait for it to happen. Well, if I could wave a magic
0: wand right now, who would you want to work with? What director and what kind of role would you want to be playing?
1: I would love, as in a movie or in a play? Let's say in a movie. I would love to work with Denis Villeneuve, not only because he's a Quebec director, he's just brilliant. I mean, the way that he's capable of working in both languages. And he has a a very unique mind uh, of using fantasy in his work. Dream state, he creates like these dream states within the movie, which are really, really powerful. I think are just poetic, beautiful. You know, you you watch it and you're like, oh, I, I get it. It's beautiful. He did crazy Uh, which was one of, like, the biggest Quebec movies. Okay. Um, He also did uh, a lot of, um, he's big now also in Hollywood. He did, with Jake Gyllenhaal, what's it called, where he's a cop. He did Sicario. Sicario,
0: Sicario is a hitman. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so Sicario, Enemy, Prisoners. He did uh, Incendie. He did Polytechnique. Uh, There's a lot of movies, like, he's, he's huge. What kind of role would you like to play? I want to play strong women. I'm tired of seeing women portrayed as beauty objects or trophy wives or like needed to be saved. I think there's so much more to women. We have so much power. Different kind of power, but I mean we're still equals.
0: Well, when you say a strong woman, that's can you can you be specific? What what would the character be? What would she what kind of work would she do? Would she be
1: um in- basically like, okay, like, um, just not a victim, not someone that needs to be saved. Um, you know, sometimes you have playwrights who can write women parts that are just beautifully, like, that are beautiful, like Tennessee Williams, for example, like, um, ha- a cat in a hot tin roof. The character, she's powerful. She's, um, she's not a victim. She's trying to save herself. Um, for example, one of my favorite playwrights is um, John Patrick Shanley. I think the way he writes women parts are just, they're written for me. Like, I, I am Roberta in the Deep Blue Sea, Danny mm-hmm. in the Deep Blue Sea. It's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's so powerful. It's like, you know, there's beauty in being ugly. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't oh, yeah. have to be pretty and makeup and blonde and. Pass me the tea. Like you, you, you can be vulnerable and afraid, and and just brutal, inhuman, really. Because a lot of times women aren't written as as humans. They're like, okay, well, now she- she's gonna take off her top, and you're gonna see beautiful bosoms and like beautiful breasts, and okay, next shot. Oh, now you're gonna she's gonna be wearing like really nice tight pants. We're not just. I understand. The visual side of it, and it is business, you know.
0: Mara, I get you know it. what? I love what you're saying, and I hear your passion. I have a feeling that you'll eventually be writing your own parts.
1: Yeah, I, I'm starting to write some things. It's I, just yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's a little be, bit
0: overwhelming. Well, sure, it's a challenge, a major challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, where do you want to
0: be or where do you see yourself in five years? I
1: see myself working really, um, having more opportunities, working on indie films, on good chunky, meaty theater uh, plays and pieces. I see myself working a lot more. And where will you be living? Part of me thinks it's going to be somewhere in Europe. Like my main, there's I have this pull since because, like I told you, like in two thousand and three, that incident happened where the guy hit me. And in 2004, I didn't want to be in Montreal to relive uh, the anniversary. So I went to Italy and I just stayed there the whole summer. And I ended up, you know, staying and staying and staying. And eventually was like, okay, you got to leave because your visa expired six months. You're in the country. In the country. You got to go back to Montreal. And I have this, I just love Europe, whether it's, it's France, whether it's Italy. There's something that keeps pulling me to it. So I'm thinking... I would have my main house like uh, apartment or whatever would be um in in Paris and travel a lot for work. You know, have the opportunity of going for pilot seasons in LA or New York or Montreal, like just living 3 months here, 3 months there, have like this gypsy lifestyle that I already do have now, but a bit less hectic and a bit more concrete in the sense of it's not going to find opportunities but actually going to work on something
0: i love in it and sense. i and i sense that you're strong enough and determined enough and have a a vivid and passionate enough dream that you will do it i know you yeah. will you know i, I want to thank you so much i th- i know that people are going to get a lot out of this this was uh certainly uh, a joy to listen to you talk and, thank to you. Sh- and to share, and thank you very much for enriching the show today.
1: Thank you for having me and and for sharing. Thank you so much. I really really appreciate it a lot. Once again, thank you
0: everyone who tuned in to listen live. Remember to rate us and review us on iTunes and Stitcher, and definitely visit Change Your Story Podcast. Dot com and claim your copy of the ebook Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Now, during the next week, ask yourself this question Am I fully living an authentic life? Is everything that I do in alignment with what I really want? Is there something that you really love to do that perhaps you're not? Well, start doing it. Even if you just begin in small, small steps, get back to what is essential to you and makes you feel fully alive. And always ask this vital question, how can I change my story and change my life?